Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this broadcast with breaking news. At this very moment, in the town of Center City in the nation's heartland, a tense courtroom drama is playing out. The defendant, an ordinary American of no particular means, a man from nowhere in particular, stands before the court accused of the very serious offense of criminal trespass to property. A very serious offense indeed. According to the indictment presented by the state, the defendant did unlawfully cross a line, and in so doing did enter upon the private property of the Acme coal-fired power plant. Witnesses for the power plant are prepared to testify that the defendant did so without invitation, without license, and without permission of any kind. While no theft or property damage is known or alleged to have occurred, executives for the power plant have insisted that these facts are irrelevant and that the state must bring the full weight of the law down upon this defendant, both to punish his transgression and to discourage others from following in his wayward footsteps. By all indications, the state is complying fully with the demands of the real victim here, the aggrieved power plant. According to a spokesman for the power plant, this seemingly harsh action is necessary. It is in the best interests of society, both because of the threat of what the defendant might have done had he not been apprehended by Acme security forces, and also in order to send a very clear message to others in the community who might otherwise be tempted to interfere with the operation of this state's most profitable and highly prized corporate citizen. Listeners to this news broadcast may recall that we reported last month on a closed-door meeting between the state's Attorney General, Beauregard Secession, and executives and attorneys for the Acme Power Plant and the numerous coal companies that supply it. Following that closed-door meeting, charges were announced against this defendant, and those charges carry the potential sentence of a lifetime in prison with no window and no possibility for parole. A spokesman for the coal company had this to say. Those who would argue that the punishment does not fit the crime fail to understand the seriousness of the consequences for society if mere citizens were able to disregard the property rights of their corporate benefactors with impunity. Why, chaos, disorder, wanton destruction, and the utter breakdown of the very fabric of the existing order are nearly certain to follow if unruly citizens are not punished severely for their transgressions. We must send a clear and strong message. After all, corporations are people too, and this particular person was violated, penetrated viciously and without consent by this defendant for reasons that are neither known nor relevant. For there can be no defense to such grievous misconduct. And let me just say that as the generous donors and supporters of both political parties in this state, and of both the Attorney General and the Governor in particular, the members of the Coal Coalition are pleased and satisfied to have this state's full cooperation and support in the prosecution of this gross and unforgivable act of insubordination. Ladies and gentlemen, inside the courtroom there's been a startling twist. For reasons that are difficult for this reporter to comprehend, the accused, who has neither the means nor the inclination to hire private counsel to defend himself against these very serious charges, has just now terminated the services of his court-appointed lawyer and has chosen to represent himself before this criminal tribunal. We now go inside the courtroom live, as the defendant is apparently about to make an opening statement. Order! Order! We must have order here in this courtroom. Now, that's better. Anyone who steps out of line or makes another sound will be immediately removed by the bailiff, taken to the lockup, 
and charged with contempt of court. Do I make myself clear? Now, Mr. Defendant, Mr. Smarty Pants, is it true that you've chosen to fire your court-appointed counsel and proceed on your own, defending yourself pro se, as it were? It is true, Your Honor. And you have done so of your own free will? Yes, Your Honor. And do you acknowledge that this court has attempted, unsuccessfully, to talk you out of this foolhardy decision? Well, Your Honor, I object to the characterization as foolhardy and move to strike that prejudicial reference from the record, but otherwise, yes. Your objection is overruled. You may proceed. Your Honor, I stand before you accused of not knowing my place in this world. I stand before you accused of criminal trespass. I have been charged with the heinous crime of interfering with the property rights of one of the great owners of the world. The charges, Your Honor, are these, that I crossed a line, that in so doing I entered upon the private property of another, and that I did so without permission. Having read the complaint, and having read the laws as they've been written and passed down by those very same owners, I have little doubt but that I will be found guilty on all charges. As for permission, I raise no defense. It is true that I put my right foot in front of my left, then my left foot in front of my right, and it is true that I didn't stop before each step to ask whether another step was allowed by the rules? Did I cross a line? It certainly appears so, according to the maps and the charts and the deeds that have graciously been produced by the power plant for introduction into evidence by the state. But in my defense, Your Honor, there was no line in the sand. And as I walked one foot in front of the other, the sand turned gradually to rock, and the rock turned to meadow, and the meadow turned to forest, and then the forest gave way to a clearing. And that clearing, Your Honor, was a wasteland, a vast industrial wasteland, a cold and cruel and lifeless place. And in the center of that wasteland, stood a towering monstrosity, a smoke-breathing creature of steel and concrete and glass. A landlocked leviathan, with tentacles reaching in every direction, with towers touching the sky and wires running to the horizons in all directions. There the monster stood, Your Honor, arrogant and defiant, breathing its thick, hot black breath high into the sky, defying even the sun herself. All of this, Your Honor, I saw. But nowhere was there a line. Private property, you say? Yes, I see that you have entire libraries filled with books of laws protecting the so-called private property rights of owners. And I see that this owner has produced a contract for deed. But what does it mean? Who did this owner pay for that property? And who did that owner pay? And who did that owner pay? And who took it first? Who took it first when it belonged to no one? Who took it from all of us? without paying anyone. Because someone did. And so I ask you, what gave them the right? What gave them the right to steal that which belonged to us all, and therefore to no one, and to claim it for their own exclusive use and enjoyment? You see, this, Your Honor, is the question before the court. 
So before you pass judgment, before you condemn me for my unavoidable but apparently unforgivable presence on this planet, before you sentence me for my inescapable humanity, I wish to make a statement. This is my testimony. On the day I was born, this world, my world, had already been seized by others. Before I was born, other people, people no different than me except that they were born first, snatched up every piece of the planet. They drew arbitrary lines on maps. They stuck their flags in the ground. They put fences around the pieces. They put guards around the fences. And they claimed those pieces for themselves. On the day I was born, there were no pieces of my world left for me to claim as my own. So, to those who came before me, I say, what gave you the right? Are you better than me? More worthy? Prove it. Did the world owe you something more than it owed to me? Prove it. Did some god, some deity choose you over me? Prove it. Otherwise, get off my land. Because by the same justification you used to take that which belongs to us all and to claim it for your exclusive use, by that same justification, I now take it from you and claim it for my exclusive use. It is my turn now. What gives me the right, you ask? The same thing that gave you the right, I reply. I have no right, you say? Neither did you, I reply. You say, it's too late now because you've altered the land, improved it. Oh yeah, you fenced it in, you kept others off it by force. And having fenced it in, you built things on it, and you used it for your own private profit. You improved it only so that you could exclude others from it, so that you alone would profit from it. But you have no right to reap private profits from that which belongs equally to us all. Those profits are not your private profits. Any more than that land is your private land. Any more than that coal, that water, that air or those natural resources you plunder and destroy are your private resources. They are not. This world, and everything in it, and above it, and within it, and all the profits you derive from it, belong to us all. You claim a right superior to mine? Prove it. You say it's too late now because... The law says it is yours and you have the right to exclude me? You who have claimed the world for yourselves? Yes, you have also written the laws with which you attempt to justify your claims. But you had no right to write the laws you now invoke to justify your taking. So I will now write a new law. As I must have the same right to write a new law as you had. And under my new law, as it is my equal right to write, all land will be taken from you and given to me, and my new law will have every bit as much justification and authority as yours. And that's right. And if you claim otherwise, prove it. You say you have the right because you came along first, and first in time is first in right? That, I reply, is an arbitrary rule created by those of you who came first to excuse your taking. But your taking is not justified, and I reject your arbitrary rule. If anything, you've had your time, and your time is up. So I deny the arbitrary authority by which you claim the right to exclude me. If you protest that your authority is not arbitrary, prove it. Prove it not by pointing to the arbitrary laws you have written to excuse your taking, for that is circular, tautological, and proves nothing. Instead, 
prove it with logic, with reason. Justify your taking, your claim of exclusive right. Let's see you try. Provide me with a reasonable justification, or provide me with an equal share. Prove that the scarce but necessary resources of this planet belong not to us all equally, but to you disproportionately, to you exclusively. Otherwise, get off my land. It's my turn now. Yes, those of you who have claimed the world for yourselves, you now own the banks and the oil and the tanks and the soil. Yes, you have exploited our planet for your own private gain, and you now possess nearly all the wealth and the power. But you who own everything are few, and we who own nothing are many. For all your money and for all your laws, for all your weapons and all your prison cells, when we, the powerless many, decide to rise up as one and reject your arbitrary authority, your wealth and your power will prove to be of little use to you. You are few, but we are many, and this is our world too. So again I say to you, the powerful few, you who have come along before me and claimed everything for yourselves, what gives you the right? First in time does not equal first in right, and might does not make right. These are arbitrary impositions of authority, and on behalf of the powerless many everywhere, I reject your arbitrary authority. You now have a choice. If you open your eyes and empathize, if you at long last realize that your rights are no greater than mine, that your authority to take from me and exclude me is no greater than my authority to do the same to you, then you will see. And then you will agree to share the benefits of that which belongs to everyone and therefore to no one. Then we will not have a problem. Then we can peacefully coexist. I will endeavor to cause no harm to you, and you will do the same for me. You will enjoy the freedom to pursue your own happiness in your own way, provided you do not thereby cause injury to others. And I will enjoy the same freedom. But if you fail or refuse to recognize this reality, you will find that your days in authority are numbered. And that number may be smaller than you think. Yes, you can lock me up here today. But there is no justice in that. And in any event, you can't lock us all up. And we are coming for you. Arbitrary authority cannot exist for long, except by coercion, persuasion, or deceit. But your excuses no longer persuade. We will no longer be deceived, and your coercive powers cannot long withstand the collective will of the powerless many once awakened. And we are awakening. Attention. Your attention, please. Do not be alarmed. There is no need to fear. This is just a little revolt. Greetings, fellow citizens, and hello world. This is A Little Revolt, the podcasting safe house for dangerous minds. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to The Revolt. As always, my name is Eric Troll. 
A Little Revolt is my little corner of the podcast universe, so I'm glad you could drop by. So what was the point of all that? Well, the fundamental point is this. There is no natural right to own or exclusively possess real property. And understand that when I say real property, I don't mean personal property, possessions. I mean real estate, which is to say land and the natural resources that are located on it, above it, and below it. Real property rights, you see, are a legal fiction. They are created on paper by man. They are nothing more than that. And they never have been. The earth didn't come equipped with fences or lines. The lands, the waterways, the skies above, the resources below, they belong equally to us all and therefore to no one. I am not born with any greater right than you or anyone else to exclude others from that which we all need in order to survive. There's no way to justify that. You simply cannot, by some claim of superior or prior right, exclude me from some common resource that I need for survival, any more than I can exclude you because to do so is to deprive another person of the means of survival. And surely we have no natural right to do that. And to say in response that the deprived, those who have been excluded from the process by which the land and its life-sustaining resources were acquired and claimed for exclusive possession, to say that they can and should simply accept their fate and accept dependency, that they should be satisfied with being forced to rely for their basic needs on the goodwill and charity or the noblesse oblige of those who are in possession? This is immoral. It's insulting and it is intolerable. No man has the right to exclusively possess that which is ours in common if in so doing he forces deprivation or dependency on those who are excluded from possession. Yet, this is exactly where we find ourselves today. An astonishingly small number of our planet's human inhabitants have claimed for themselves rights of ownership and exclusive possession over every parcel of land, every resource of value, every known deposit of needed minerals, every stretch of fresh water, all that is rightfully ours in common, and in so doing they have forced dependence and servitude on the rest. And now, for all practical purposes, there are no more new claims to make. There are no more vacant, unclaimed parcels of land to grab. Every gallon of water, whether flowing on the surface or pooling in underground aquifers, has been spoken for. Even the air we breathe is being possessed, effectively, by profiteers who pump toxic airborne waste from their industrial processes into our atmosphere, harming us all without our consent and without paying the cost. They are using our air as a free dumping ground. This is a huge cost to society. But the profiteers... The ones who are benefiting by dumping for free what they would otherwise have to pay in order to capture and dispose of properly, they're not being made to pay any of that cost. They're stealing from us all. Stealing our clean air and replacing it with their industrial toxins. Stealing our clean drinking water and replacing it with their poisonous chemical runoffs, their lead and their crude oil spills. And now because the profiteers own both the political parties, that's right, both political parties are owned by the corporatists. And because those same corporatists control both lawmaking and law enforcement, their actions are sanctioned and legitimized by the state. And we citizens have neither the right nor the ability to object. Meanwhile, the planet's population continues to increase. 
As a result, our collective need for those life-sustaining resources continues to increase. And so, we continue to pay higher and higher costs to the owners for rent and for access to the resources they own and control. We sell our labor to them in exchange for a small share of life's necessities, and those owners continue to deplete and exhaust our planet's finite supply of available resources at an ever-accelerating rate. What this all means is that as time passes, there are going to be more and more of us, the dispossessed and the deprived, and we are going to find ourselves fighting with one another for an ever smaller share of what's left of our finite planetary resources. And the cost of those scarce but necessary resources will continue to rise as demand increases and supply dwindles. At the same time, the divide between the haves and the have-nots continues to widen. Ownership, you see, begets wealth, and wealth begets power. And all three, ownership, wealth, and power, all three are consolidating rapidly into fewer and fewer hands, both here in the U.S. and all around the world. In every sector of the economy, we see the same thing happening. The bigger owners buy out, drive out, or take over the smaller owners. The great owners have become fewer in number, but they become wealthier and more powerful than ever. Beneath them is an army of lawyers and accountants, lobbyists, bankers, and other high-paid servants of wealth, all doing the bidding of the great owners in exchange for a share of wealth sufficient to keep them residing comfortably in the top 10% of society. But beneath them, where a vast, thriving middle class once churned as the real engine of sustained economic growth and prosperity, there now exists a great void. The middle class has evaporated. The jobs that once supported middle class lifestyles and families have been outsourced and have been replaced by new technologies. By outsourcing manufacturing jobs to low-wage nations, and by replacing human workers with robots, computers, and machines whenever possible, the great owners have been able to realize huge gains in profits and productivity. But the upper echelon has hoarded those profits, taken all the benefits of the productivity gains for themselves leaving the vast majority of people out in the cold, doing little more than just barely getting by. And in more and more places around the world, just getting by is getting harder and harder. So the few at the top have more than ever and are living lives of shameful, unimaginable opulence and decadence while the ranks at the bottom continue to swell as more and more people are left struggling for mere survival. But this growing imbalance between the haves and the have-nots, this deepening inequity, this increasingly immoral taking by the ownership class, it is not sustainable without the overwhelming use of force. And the great owners know this. The swelling numbers of the dispossessed, of this land and of the world, cannot and will not continue indefinitely to peacefully and patiently tolerate extreme wealth inequality. And so the enforcement of the rules that protect wealth and the wealthy, and that permit extreme wealth inequality to persist, those rules will inevitably and necessarily become even more brutal and more authoritarian if order and the status quo are to be maintained going forward. You see, once the gross inequity becomes so obvious and open to those who are not in possession, and once the deprived are truly awakened 
to the injustice of their circumstances and the fact that this injustice is deliberate? That the inequity is by design? Unrest invariably follows. And so it has. Protests, demonstrations, and revolts large and small are erupting everywhere. In more and more places around the planet, the deprived and the excluded masses are in fact awakening to the injustice that surrounds them, and they're losing patience with the unnecessarily meager and austere circumstance of their lives. Drought and famine are everywhere. Food shortages and malnutrition, water shortages, crop failures, soil erosion, resource depletion, pandemic disease, foodborne, waterborne, and airborne illnesses that target the weakest among us with deadly ferocity, war, squalor, pollution. All of these conditions are spreading globally and are leading to conflict on all continents. We should expect these uprisings, protests, and revolts to continue, even expand. But we should also expect to see a corresponding increase in the authoritarian crackdown by states and by private enterprise against protesters, dissidents, journalists, civil rights advocates, labor unions, leaders of social movements, and the like. We should expect to see states increasing their surveillance of their own citizenry as they watch and listen intently for the murmuring of revolt, that it might be crushed in its infancy. We should expect to see an increasingly cozy relationship between big businesses and government as they combine forces and share information to keep the wheels of the consumer economy turning, to keep corporate, profit, corporate profits flowing, and to keep protesters and critics safely under wraps. We should expect to see governments looking for any event, any excuse, that might be used to impose draconian new restrictions on individual liberties and privacy, all in the stated interest of securing and defending the homeland. Now granted, this is not a very flattering picture. And if you happen to live in some gentrified, leafy suburban enclave or in some homogenous small rural town, well, what I've just described might sound like some dystopian fantasy, but I promise you it isn't. This is the truth inconvenient though it may be. But what we must understand is this. These conditions, our current conditions as I have just described them, and the conditions that we should accept or expect to not accept, the conditions that we should expect to see in our immediate future, these are the natural and inevitable result of the extreme and increasing wealth inequality that has taken hold of humanity gradually over the last four centuries and particularly over the last 50 years. Let me say this again, and let me be as clear as I can be. Extreme wealth inequality is the leading cause of the struggle and strife that we see all around the world today, and the global spread of laissez-faire free market capitalism, put free market in quotes, with its intentional elevation of property rights over human rights, that is the leading cause of this extreme wealth inequality. Of course, it hasn't always been this way. Extreme wealth inequality and private property rights are relative newcomers to the human condition. And it's no condition that they essentially arrived together, given the causal connection that exists between the two. Throughout most of our early history, the human population was too small and too spread out for any one person's exclusive possession of some bit of land or resources to have much of an impact on others. 
Indeed, the earth and its abundant resources must have seemed limitless to our ancestors. Our earliest prehistoric ancestors were, for a very long period of time, nomadic hunters and gatherers. They had no possessions to speak of. And concepts like wealth, wealth inequality, property and property rights would have had little or no meaning. In fact, to the contrary, the anthropological and archaeological evidence shows that those early tribes were actually highly and ruthlessly egalitarian, so much so that doing less than one's fair share of the work or taking more than one's fair share of the food, those were transgressions that were punishable by expulsion, even by death. In a very real sense, wealth inequality was taboo. Now, that said, the evidence also shows that even our early ancestors occupied caves and various types of safe dwellings in order to protect themselves and their kin against outside threats. And this survival-enhancing tactic probably lies at the root of humanity's inclination towards the ownership and exclusive possession of real estate. So, it's natural that we should want to possess a safe place from which we can exclude unwanted visitors. And as long as there are enough caves to go around, there should be no problem. As long as there's more than enough of everything to go around, the moral implications of exclusive possession never materialize. As long as your claim of exclusive right over some parcel doesn't deprive me of access to that which I need to survive, well, then I need not challenge the moral authority upon which your claim of exclusive right is based. More generally, as long as your claim of ownership and exclusive possession of that which collectively constitutes your wealth does not limit or impair my ability to inquire, to, I should say, acquire, and possess that which collectively constitutes my wealth, so long as there's more than enough to go around, in other words, then the fact that you have more wealth than I do, or that I have more wealth than you do, should be of no consequence. Under these circumstances, wealth inequality raises no moral concerns. But here in the 21st century, it can no longer be said that there's more than enough of everything to go around, because there are so many in the world who are wanting, who are needy, but who are nevertheless deprived and forced to do without. This means that one of two things is true. Either there is not enough to go around, or there is enough to go around, but it is not being distributed optimally. And in almost every instance we could look at, we find it to be the latter. Without a doubt, we are also overtaxing our resources. And we are facing, and we will continue to face, situations where there just isn't enough to go around. True global planetary shortages of necessary resources. But so much of the current deprivation we see around the world and the devastation it causes, is caused not by a shortage of overall supply, but by grossly unjust distribution. The fact that we have, for instance, ample housing to house every human being on the planet, yet we allow ourselves hundreds of millions of people who remain homeless. This is proof positive that as a matter of official state policy, the nations of the world, led by the United States, hold the private property rights of owners to be superior to the basic human right to shelter. In like manner, we produce enough food to satisfy global needs, yet billions go hungry, while others gorge themselves into morbid obesity and vast mountains of food are simply wasted, thrown away. There's plenty of food. That's not the problem. That may one day become the problem, but it isn't the problem today. 
The problem today is that it isn't being distributed appropriately. And the reason it isn't being distributed appropriately is because it isn't sufficiently profitable to see that everyone in the world who's hungry gets fed. You see, it seems that the great owners and the operators of the food production and distribution industries would rather see food go to waste than give it away for free. And society's rules defer consistently to their wishes over the wishes of a hungry world. So, as long as there were enough caves to go around, so to speak, there was no moral dilemma to be dealt with. But all the caves have now been claimed. And I have none. Because there are no new property claims that I can make. Your ownership and exclusive possession of some parcel of land or real estate does limit and impair my ability to acquire and possess my own share. I must now be willing and able to pay the market price for some portion of your parcel or some other parcel, or else I'm dispossessed. But I'm a human being. You have no moral right to dispossess me, just as I have no moral right to dispossess you. And even though it is not your ownership and exclusive possession alone that causes my dispossession, but rather you as part of an entire system of capital and of property rights, this does not exonerate you. It doesn't let you off the hook. The entire system of which you are a participant and beneficiary is immoral. And the fact that you didn't intend for it to be so doesn't change the fact that it is. Nor does the fact that you paid for the property you now own and exclusively possess. Somewhere upstream from you, somebody committed the original sin of enclosure. Somebody took a property that belonged to us all, fenced it in, called it theirs exclusively, and did so without paying value to all those who are excluded by their exclusive possession. That's the original sin. And it's not a defense if you're in possession of stolen property to say, well, I paid for it. If the rightful owner of stolen property gets found, the fact that you paid what you thought was fair market value for something doesn't entitle you to keep it. We now live in a world where fewer than 10 individual human beings own and control as much wealth as the bottom 50% of all humanity some 3.7 billion people. Ten people. This is a moral outrage. There is simply no way to argue that such severe concentrations of wealth should ever be allowed to exist within a society of free people. It belies the very notion of freedom. It makes a mockery of freedom. Just in the last half century, the richest 1% have seen their share of global wealth skyrocket, while the remaining 99% has flatlined. And the richest one-tenth of 1% has seen their wealth grow much faster even than the 1% as a whole. And the richest one-hundredth of 1%, well, they've seen their wealth grow even faster than that of the one-tenth of 1%, and so on. Do you see the pattern? It is the intentional and systemic upward redistribution of wealth. It began intentionally and in earnest under the corrupt administration of Republican Richard Nixon. It didn't slow down under hapless Republican Gerald Ford, nor did it falter under well-meaning but overmatched Democrat Jimmy Carter. It absolutely exploded with righteous evangelical Christian fervor under crooked Republican Ronald Reagan, and it crept forward despite economic malaise under corrupt Republican George Herbert Walker Bush. It even made surprising gains under sharp but crooked neoliberal Democrat Bill Clinton. And it achieved nirvana under the crooked and hapless Republican George Walker Bush and the thoroughly corrupt individuals who ran his administration from the shadows. And, 
It defied odds with great gains under earnest but ultimately compliant neoliberal corporatist Barack Obama. And under the flamboyant, childish, ignorant immorality of corporatist Donald Trump, one can already see that the richest among us will continue to be wildly successful compared to the rest of us, rewarded in complete disproportion to their worth. So yes, there is a pattern. The pattern has held truer during some periods in our nation's history than others. We have actually had periods where wealth inequality was less extreme and where wealth was not flowing as rapidly upward in defiance of moral gravity. Most recently, we can look to the period that stretched from the end of World War II, 1945, until the early 1960s. Not coincidentally, we Americans tend to look back on this period of relative equality as our golden era. By contrast, the last time that wealth inequality was as extreme as it is today was in 1929, just before the great stock market crash of October 1929 was about to trigger the Great Depression. And no, that was not a coincidence either. But over the last 50 years, and certainly since Richard Nixon took office in 1969, we can say that, regardless of president or party, the richest among us have steadily gotten even richer, and sometimes dramatically so, and all at the collective expense of the rest of us. Because for the rest of us, income and wealth have flatlined. Wealth inequality in the United States today is at historic highs. And it's not by accident, it's by design. It is the intended result of policies specifically designed and implemented to redistribute wealth upward. It is the intentional taking of wealth from us, the many, from those of us who already have relatively little, to take from us in order to give even more to the few, those who already have the most. And for decades, the main pushers of this state-sanctioned fleecing of the population, and when I say pushers, I'm talking about the wealthy donor class and the business elites, along with their lobbyists and politicians of all political persuasions, and from all regions who are eager to assist the corporatocracy in any way they can. These have been the very people who stood to benefit the most from this upward redistribution. (laughs) Big surprise, right? Meanwhile, the designers and the implementers of this system, they have been the same politicians and the army of bureaucrats who orbit around the truly powerful, servicing their needs and feeding from their scraps while hoping for an invitation to the the adult's table. And for decades, this system has been run by and for those who are able to use their wealth, their power, their platforms, and their connections to influence legislation, enforcement, and policy in ways that directly favor their own interests. And What could further one's own interests more directly than taking from others in order to give to oneself? But perhaps I'm being too harsh, you think? Perhaps we the people are being prepared by the great owners, you know, for our own good. Perhaps out of their benevolence, they are just acclimating us for the future that they know is coming for that not-too-distant future where there truly is not enough of life's essentials to go around. Hey, maybe one day we'll thank them for toughening us up. Or maybe the elites are just objectively much better than us, so much better and so much worthier than us as human beings that they're simply entitled to receive what they deserve. Or perhaps the powerful few have decided that it just isn't worth it going to great lengths to save the weaker elements within society. Maybe it's even counterproductive. Let the weak and the uncivilized starve 
Let them die off and kill one another. Because that'll leave more resources and a rejuvenated planet for her more worthy inhabitants. Could that be it? In fact, this is truly a burgeoning global crisis for citizens of the 21st century. And it is only getting worse. And if we want to change the direction, if we, the dispossessed masses, want to see the old rules of ownership and exclusive possession torn up and replaced by a more equitable set of rules, we had better get busy. We'd better get organized, we'd better get active, and we had better do it very soon. Because pretty soon, it will be too late.